think we had about 800 people come through our building on Friday for the Goods Friday services. Two services, 9 and 11. And uh, it was really incredible. You guys were great hosts for the Christians of the city. And um, I was very proud. The whole time I just sort of thought, well, yeah, it's, it's easy to be a pastor of this church. You just, you just get to brag all the time about your great people. So I'm so proud of you guys. And uh, thanks for serving others on Friday. And, uh, and for all those of you who are serving us today, thank you so much. Ah, hmm. I'm going to see how I can do this. Maybe I'm going to get someone to help me. I'm going to move this one communion table. It's good. Somebody who feels, yeah. Okay, Graham wins. Graham wins. We're just going to move it this way here because there's something I want to show. So. All right. Everybody give Graham a hand because he was first up. <laughs> all right. So before I jump in any farther, let me just say we're going to start a brand new teaching series next week. So we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and today will be our last uh, day in 1 Corinthians. There's a couple passages I didn't get to in 1 Corinthians, particularly chapter 14. And uh, so I'm going to hold off those for another time. But starting next week, we're starting a brand new series in the book of James. And the book of James is a super practical book. It is a super practical book. It's, uh, we're sort of subtitling the series, you know, Apprentices of Jesus, because really the book of James talks about what we do. You know, so you, you come to believe in Jesus, but now what do you do? What are some of the practical ways that you become more and more like Jesus in your life after that? And so we're going to go through the book of James starting next week, and it's going to be a really practical series and a really helpful series as we go forward. Every week is going to be challenging, but exciting, and I'm really excited for, for the messages that are to come. So I'll just tell you that in advance. Now to kick things off here, uh, Laura Stackrock, who's our children's pastor, and myself, we were um, watching a video together this week, and we both agreed it was too good not to watch together with you. So the kids are actually probably watching it sometime this morning. They are watching it, and we're going to watch it too. So sometimes people say, I just don't get the big picture of the Bible, and um, we wanted to give you a little bit of a big picture of the Bible, centering it on the Easter story, and uh, this is a digital generation we're living in, and so if any of you uh, spent a lot of time in your basement playing NES, that's a Nintendo system, anyhow, if you, if you did that, you will recognize the styling of this uh, history of the Bible. Anyhow, so the kids are watching it, and I thought it was just good enough for us to watch too. So here's a fun little uh, short historical view of the resurrection in the Bible. Today, our story is from the book of Luke. It's a story about an ingenious plan, the death of an innocent man, and the most important moment in all of history. When Jesus was 33 years old, he was killed. And that seemed like it was the end of the story. But it was all part of a plan. This plan had started all the way back in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of the Bible. God wanted a close relationship with us. But Adam and Eve sinned, and that separated us from God. But at that moment, God set in motion a plan to rescue us from our sin. And that plan was Jesus. It started by God choosing Abram and promising him that his family would become a great nation and that all nations will be blessed through them. His family became the nation of Israel, the nation Jesus would eventually be born into. 
God loved his people Israel and wanted them to live in the best way possible. So he gave them rules to follow and a special land to live in. But the people of Israel were not able to keep the rules and kept making bad choices. So God sent his own son, Jesus, to rescue them and show them how to live. Jesus showed us that the purpose for the rules was to help us to love God and love others above all else. This was a radical new teaching, and this made the teachers of the law angry because they thought that following the rules was more important than anything else. So they came up with a plan to capture Jesus and kill him. And eventually, they did. Jesus was put to death on a wooden cross along with two other criminals, and after hanging on the cross for hours, he died. At that moment, the sky grew dark, and the curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. This was a symbol that through Jesus, we are no longer separated from God by our sin, and we could be reunited with Him. And that was the plan, and Jesus completed it. But that wasn't the end. Later that evening, Jesus' body was taken down from the cross and put in a tomb. It laid there for three days. And then, something unexpected and wonderful happened. He came back to life. This was the moment that everything in God's rescue plan had been leading up to. All the promises and prophecies God had made to Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Moses, the nation of Israel, David, Isaiah, Daniel, Micah, Zechariah, and many more were all about Jesus. Jesus was the thread that connected all of these stories. He is the main character in God's incredible story. Every book, chapter, and story in the Bible somehow is connected to Jesus. His death on the cross and resurrection three days later is the most important event in all the Bible, maybe all of eternity. All right. The resurrection, his death and resurrection is the most important uh, part of the whole Bible, that's for sure. And he says, and maybe even all of history, all of eternity. And uh, that's pretty important. It's pretty important. Some, you know, some people, um, the resurrection is interesting because some people have a problem with the resurrection. They say, oh, Jesus died and then he came back to life. Like some people struggle they, to believe that. Um, I, one of the thing, the uh, objections that sometimes you encounter is that people will say, well, does Jesus have to come back to life for it to be a good story? I mean, can't it just be that he was a good man and he died and a very, you know, unfair de death? But does he have to be resurrected? And you know, it's, it's interesting that you read the writings in the Bible of the earliest Christians and they say again and again and again, the resurrection is what really makes it happen, right? We, we celebrated Good Friday on, on Friday, and that's focused more on the cross. If you were here, you would have seen that we had, if you were here, you might remember the cross sort of tilted on its side to represent Jesus carrying the cross. And, and instead of a white garment, we had like red garments, and then also red, you know, coming through the heart here as well. And uh, so we're talking about Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. Uh, but you know what? If that was the end of the story, Jesus died, that would really 
there wouldn't be much story to tell. In fact, there would be no movement around Jesus that ever began. It was the resurrection that started the movement around Jesus. You know, Jesus' followers, they didn't expect um, to go and find an open grave. When Jesus died, it was over for them, right? Um, The Romans, the religious leaders, and Jesus' followers all had one thing in common. They didn't expect the resurrection. When they went to the tomb, even Jesus' followers, they were shocked to find that it was empty. They're like, what is going on? This people who die stay dead. And so uh, I heard one commentator say it this way, nobody expected nobody. Right? There was nobody in the whole story who said, well, you know, I'm just going to go by the grave and it's Easter morning. And, well, not Easter morning yet, but it's this Sunday morning and, and I'm just going to wait till he comes out. Nobody did that because nobody saw that coming. And so without the resurrection, uh, you and I wouldn't have heard of Jesus. We wouldn't have heard of Jesus. We wouldn't know about Jesus. We wouldn't know about The resurrection is so important to the story. And now I was, we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and I found a little bit of a, a neat thing. Uh, well, I found it quite remarkable, actually, as I was going through 1 Corinthians. So I want, I want to read you some verses and then explain a little bit of, of something that I, I found very neat, and hopefully it'll be neat for you, too. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-7 says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So um, Paul used to be in Corinth. He actually sort of started the church there, and now he's in Ephesus, and he's saying, Hey, I want to I remind you of stuff I taught you when I was back there about three years ago. So I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news, that's what gospel means, the good news I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Okay, so he's saying that, but then here's, here's where it gets really interesting, he says, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. What's of first importance? What's so important that it's, it's like number one importance? What's so high? And here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and then to the twelves, to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Well, that's a pretty good way of saying you can fact check me, right? Like, here's some actual names of people you could check out, and, uh, and there's lots of them, and they're, and they're still living. Though some have fallen asleep, that's a loaded uh, phrase, and I'm going to unpack it a little bit in a second. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Uh, how important is the resurrection of Jesus? It's so, so important. You know that phrase, falling, fallen asleep? Um, before the resurrection you would have never said that phrase. You wouldn't say that phrase. When someone dies, you wouldn't say they've fallen asleep. That would just be like a poor categorization of what's happened. You say, no, no, they, they've died. No, they've fallen asleep. Well, that seems like an insensitive thing. In fact, Jesus even used that in that phrase another time in his, in his uh, uh, life where he was, there was a girl, she, she had died, 
and she says, she's just sleeping. And everybody's upset with him. They're like, how insensitive. I can't believe you'd say that. Well, Jesus' intention in the, in the story is, is to raise her back to life. Which is a little bit of a teaser trailer for what's going to come. Falling asleep. As a Christian, I believe that last summer when my dad passed away in June, that he fell asleep. No, no, I don't literally mean that he's going to wake up in the morgues or in the grave or anything like that. But that because Christ has been resurrected, he also will be resurrected. That that's not the end of the story. That now I'm not, a, I'm not forever separated from my father, actually. I don't know how long I'll live, but maybe in another 40 years or, or less, I'll be united with him because of Christ's resurrection. So this is a brand new phrase that Christians are starting to use. They've fallen asleep. Why? Because a whole new reality has opened up that they didn't expect. Jesus rose from the grave. Now, the thing that I found really fascinating this week was that Paul is reciting a creed here. A creed. Do you know what a creed is? I don't know. Some of you might have grown up in churches or, or you've been to a church where they recite like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or there's different creeds, right? You know, we believe and then there's a whole list of things that comes after that. Um, a creed. And these a creeds have been used all the way through history. You know what they're really helpful for? They're, 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 what they are is they're carefully crafted, memorable statements to help you remember very important information and it's especially helpful for people who can't read and write. So in, in the culture of that day, there would have been a segment of the population who could read and write, and there would be a fairly large, much larger than we have in Canada, uh, section of the population that couldn't read and write. And so creeds were a really effective way for people to remember things, and uh, they would stick with people. And um, let me give you an example of a creed, okay, that, that all of you know. You might not have, I don't know what church background you're from or non-church background, whatever background you're from, you all know this creed, okay? It goes like this. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Okay, pause. Have you heard of this one? I mean, just, I, I think you all know it. I could be wrong, but A, B, C, D, E, F, G. H, I, J, K. Lasagna, P. Now, you all recognize that I didn't say it right. You all was like, well, you got to the right part, Steve, you know, but you missed elemento. You know, the Italian part of our alphabet. <laughs> you want lasagna or you want elemento? You know, you can have either. But the thing about a creed is people learn it as a group. They all know it so well that if anyone ever deviates from the creed, says it differently, it's instantly recognizable, and as we learned from Lee Barron's last week, somebody in the crowd is going to correct you, right? You guys were all polite. That's very nice. But you know this creed. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. H, I, J, K, P. Someone put a cadence to it. Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, N, Oh, you're so patriotic. <laughs> There's a lot of Z heads in the room. Uh, 
Z or Z, right? And then if you did say Z, then you'd probably follow it up with, now I know my ABCs, soon I'll have my PhD. <laughs> See, I can't mess with it without you noticing. Because it's a creed. You know it. And who do we teach it to? People who can't read or write. Your kids can't read and write when they learn this. That's what we teach it to. And they never forget it their whole lives. That's what a creed does. This is a creed. So back then, they would, and, and still to this day in many places, you, 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 you teach important truths through a creed. It would be something that was memorable. And so verses 3 and 4, at least, and maybe a bit more than that, but at least verses 3 and 4 are an ancient creed. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. At least, at least up to, uh, yeah, at least up to that point. It's an, it's an ancient creed. So what does that tell you about that? Well, some people say today, they say it's been, uh, it's like hundreds of years after Jesus died, Christians sort of changed the story. And they changed the story to say, well, and he was resurrected. Well, that's something that a lot of people believe. Hundreds of years, hundreds of years. You know, it wasn't until, you know, everybody sort of formally acknowledged what parts were part of the Bible and all that stuff. And so it was all the later. And it wasn't the actual generation that lived with Jesus uh, that recognized the resurrection. But it was generations later that thought that would be an important add-on to the story. And that's, a lot of people think that today. And I want, I want to just show you something really quickly. Do you know Nobody, nobody, no scholar anywhere disputes uh, who wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. They, all scholars would agree it was written by the Apostle Paul. That's, not, that's pretty unique because people do have debates over lots of Bible books, but not 1 Corinthians. Everybody says that's, that's Paul and the Apostle Paul. And nobody debates whether the Apostle Paul lived either, that he was first century Jew, a great leader in the church, um, and Exact, they know quite a few details about his life. So there's no, there's no debate about this. This is something that's undisputable. So he wrote the book of Galatians in 55, not 1955, but actually 55, which, now I'm going to put this down, and you're going to say, Jesus died in 32. Well, there's some debate about what the exact year is, but it's only wiggles about two or three years on either side. Somebody say, 33, because he was 33, but some people say, but they got the original dating wrong, so it could have been as early as 30 and maybe up to 33 in that range. So, what's that? That's 23 years. So when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, it was 23 years after Jesus died. Some people say, oh, it was hundreds of years later. No, he's writing it and says, you know what? You can fact check me. In fact, I'll name names. I'll name Peter. I'll name James. 500 others. If you want to know about the resurrection, why we believe in the resurrection, why we believe Jesus was resurrected, ask the people who walked with Jesus. Ask the people who saw him die. Ask the people whose hearts left them as they realized all the hope that they had in Jesus was gone. And they really had no purpose in continuing this facade of following Jesus. They just go back to fishing, go back to doing whatever they're doing before. But suddenly, something changed all that. Talk to those guys if you want to know about the resurrection. So he wrote that in 1 Corinthians uh, in, in 55. So that's 20, uh, you know, 23 years later. Um, 
You know, people can usually remember things pretty good 23 years later. Now, if you're 23, that's not true. <laughs> but if you're 50, it's pretty true, isn't it? Huh? It's pretty true. If you're 40, it's pretty true. You can remember things from 23 years ago. Right? I go, if I go back 23, college days, 23 years ago, wow, I remember those days pretty well. I can tell you lots of things about them. Right? Especially significant life-altering events. We'd all agree probably that we can all remember about 17 years ago, again, depending on your age, if you're 17, not likely, but if you're a millennial, you for sure remember September 11th. Do you remember what happened? Was it something about towers? It's not like that. It's almost like a creed for us. We know it was two towers. We know there was airplanes involved, and then the rest we're debating about still to this day. Right? Because there's all sorts of fun conspiracy theories about that. But we'll never forget, because that was a, a world-shaping event that really happened. So we'll, we'll remember it. So you remember things, you know, around 20 years ago. I hope so. Next year's my 20th anniversary. I hope I remember. And my wife uh, hopes I remember too. Okay. But you know what? This isn't the first time that the resurrection was brought up by Paul. In fact, did you re- let me read those verses again. It says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. And then he says, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. So he says, I remind you. He's saying, I already told you this before. In fact, he told him that three years ago. When he moved to Corinth and he started the church in Corinth. So it was 1952 when he first told them this creed. But the thing is, Paul never made up the creed. He's quoting it. Somebody else made up the creed. So the question is, and let me, read, let me help you with that part. Uh, verse 2 says, For I received what I passed on to you of first importance. I received this from someone else. Somebody else told me this. I encountered in my journey this creed that other Christians were already reciting together. So people already were... Uh, talking about the resurrection as the defining event in Christianity before that. So I made some more here. Maybe it was, maybe it was back, like, um, Acts 13 tells the story of how Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, and, uh, and the Holy Spirit had set apart Barnabas and Saul to go on a missions trip. And of course, just like all good missions trips, your first one should always be to a tropical island. So they went to Cyprus, right? Really roughing it for Jesus. Actually, back then it would be because shipwrecks were common and, and going on a, on a Mediterranean voyage was not uh, the pleasure cruise that it can be today. All right. So, did, did Paul know that creed when he went on his first missionary journey in, in uh, 44? If so, well, that's only 12 years after Jesus died. If he knew it back then, and there's a very good chance that he, he did know it back then. But let's go back a little bit further. Two more events I'll just throw in our timeline for fun. Um, Galatians, do you have that? Galatians 1, 18 and 19? Tell us about how Jesus, uh, or I mean, Paul went to visit Peter and James. Notice Peter and James were mentioned in the creed. He went to visit them. And in Galatians, it tells us about it. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, Peter, Cephas, it's another name for Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. So, nice detail in there. You know, when you tell lies, you don't put these kind of details in. 
because then it's hard because people can disprove you. Okay, next, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So he meets with Peter and James, and this was, if, you, if, if we had the context of that, that was three years after he became a follower of Jesus. So we're going to back things up a little ways to 40, when he went to Jerusalem to meet Peter and James, and maybe that's where he learned the creed. Now, maybe he for sure knew it before he shared it the first time in Corinth. And he probably knew it when he went to Cyprus. And I'm guessing it's probably right around here that he might have learned it. But he could have even learned it earlier. He could have learned it when he first became a follower of Jesus in Damascus. So, Jesus dies. About five years later, some people say as little as possibly one year later for Paul. Somewhere in that gap, one to five years, he becomes a follower of Jesus himself. He's, which is a big surprise, because he was definitely not that at the beginning. And uh, so maybe the first people who taught him about Jesus uh, taught him that creed. Or maybe uh, it was when he met Peter and James. Or maybe he knew it before he went to Cyprus when he was an elder in the church in Antioch. But he for sure knew it by the time he got to Corinth. And uh, it's in our book of 1 Corinthians so where does this resurrection creed fit? It's for sure here, but it could be all the way back to here. It could be that at the very beginning, that the, the leaders or the people in the church of Jerusalem, early after, right after Christ's resurrection, that they began reciting this creed. Let's read it again. It says, for what? That Christ was died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. And then I leave off the, the, the other part because I'm not totally sure if that's part of Paul's edition or, or the original creed. So, you say, well, so what? That's the important part, the so what? So what? Why is that so important? Well, when people say, well, you know what, this is just something that a whole other generation, hundreds of years down the road, decided to add into the gospel story. We have Paul, the undisputed author of 1 Corinthians. Nobody disputes that he was the author. Nobody disputed that he lived. Nobody disputed when he lived. Why? Because his, the, story, the stories in the Bible are so full of things you could fact check. Like Paul, one of the ones is like all the... All the in the stories about Paul, you've got all these different uh, leaders that are, are re- recognized there. You've got Pilate, Herod, Caesar Augustus, uh, Festus, uh, Felix, those two guys. They replaced each other, maybe because their names were similar. King Agrippa. You've got all these different ones. So you can, you can actually, outside of the Bible, go to historians and you can find many of these men and find exactly when they served and when Paul would have encountered them. So when he says, well, I was on trial before Festus or Felix or King Agrippa or etc., you can find that exact year because some of those guys were only serving in that locality for one year. So it's sort of locked down. And then you can move backwards. And so somewhere along the line, in this short span of 25 years, the church as a whole was clearly declaring in community that the resurrection was their central reality. Not made up hundreds of years ago. See, Christians didn't create Christianity. 
Christians didn't cook it up. When the tomb was empty, the initial people who came to the tomb had the same response as people who weren't followers of Jesus. Who took the body? Where's the body? But something happened. Something happened that changed them all. Something happened that changed them all. The Bible didn't create Christianity. That's not a bad statement. Don't worry about that if you're still trying to process that. It's not anti-Bible. I'm so pro-Bible you wouldn't believe it. Christians didn't create Christianity. It was the resurrection that created the movement we call Christianity. If there was no resurrection, there'd be no Christianity. Nothing but the resurrection explains the transformation of Jesus' followers. Like, I, I, I think what it would be like if you got to that, where's that meeting one? Okay, so here's, here's Paul, he goes to meet Peter, and then he also meets James. Can you imagine if those three guys sat down? Or wait, 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 let's do it differently. Imagine if you were given, you had a committee, and the committee's job was to appoint three significant leaders who would help lead this new movement. And the committee sat down and they said, one guy said, hey, how about we pick Peter? And everybody's like, yeah, Peter, he's that cowardly guy. He always talks a big game, and then he blows it when the heat's on, and he, and he runs away. And he denied Jesus three times, didn't he? Perfect. He'd be perfect to help start this movement. Bit of a wuss. Right on. No one would pick Peter. What about James? Oh, James, yeah, isn't that Jesus' younger brother? Yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah, totally doesn't. Well, let's be honest. How much would it take you to believe that your older brother was the Messiah? <laughs> I have two older brothers. It would take an unbelievable amount of evidence <laughs> to even believe that they were sort of halfways there. Well, let's pick James. He totally doesn't believe in Jesus. In fact, when Jesus was crucified, he didn't even show up at the crucifixion. That's why Jesus had to give his mother's care over to John. Let's pick a guy who doesn't believe in Jesus. Oh, 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 I got one. You know that guy, Paul, who's murdering all the Christians? Let's pick him too. Yeah, he is so hostile to the movement of Jesus, he wants to wipe it out. He would be really great to build around. You know, get a team around him. He is just the most legalistic, religious, power-mad abuser of Christians. So many people have died because of his authority and his, his power and his, his, yeah. Let's pick him to lead the church. None of this makes any sense. Peter, James, and Paul became great, transformed leaders of the church because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. Listen to Peter. Here he's getting, uh, he's getting uh, arrested. In fact, arrested by the very same people that arrested Jesus, the religious authorities in Jerusalem. And um, let me see if I can find that. Oh, yeah, here we go. So he's arrested, and then they say, by what power? They've healed somebody they, they, in the name of Jesus, so that's like a big problem. By what power or name did you do this? And then it says, then Peter, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for the act of kindness shown to the man who was lame and, and being asked how he was healed, then know this. Remember Peter the coward? You, know this, you and all the people of Israel. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. You know, this is just not, usually when you get arrested, you just don't do this. I mean, you shouldn't do this. Maybe you do do this. <laughs> In this day, like, they had the power to scourge and kill them, to torture and kill, and that would have been standard, not like the unusual punishment. That would have been legal. This is where men would get to their knees and grovel for their lives. And it says at the end of that passage of Scripture, it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note of these, that these men had been with Jesus. What changed Peter from one who couldn't stand up to anybody, even a little girl saying, I think you were with Jesus. No, no, I swear, it's not true. To a guy who could stand in the face of the people who had the power to, say, to kill him and say, you killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. It was the resurrection. It was the resurrection. How about James, we'll talk more about James in the weeks to come. But how, he, he became convinced. And it says in the passage that we read that it was that Jesus appeared to him. Jesus appeared to him. I don't know what that was like, right? My brother went off some crazy path, thought he was the Messiah. He was crucified. It's so shameful. Of course I didn't go. I heard my mom went. And then Jesus appears to him, and I don't even know how that conversation went down. But at the end, he became a believer. That would take some pretty significant evidence of Jesus' resurrection. And then Paul. Paul, well, Paul had a different experience where, of course, I've got the little picture here of him falling down and, and actually meeting the resurrected Christ even later on. And now, he gives up his life of power, prestige, and privilege that he lived to spread this message all over the world, which causes him to be imprisoned, tortured. In fact, he even says a really cool thing. I, I still haven't figured it out. But in, in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, uh, if the resurrection wasn't real, then why did I fight wild beasts at Ephesus? So I thought, is that metaphorical, like some really nasty people he fought with and argued with? Or is that like he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with a black bear? Like, I don't know what that means, but I really want to find it out. But he's basically saying, like, if this wasn't real, why did I have to, why did I have to fight? Why not stay home? And why was I shipwrecked? Why was I scourged? Why was I lashed 39 times in prison? Why was I put into stocks? And, and uh, why did I go through all this torture and mistreatment? Why was I stoned to the point of death? If Jesus isn't resurrected, there'd be no point in any of this. Jesus, and Paul made that very clear. So the resurrection is a reality. The resurrection is a reality. From the earliest stages, Christians said, whoa, I thought this was over. I thought this was done. I thought this ended in shame. 
But God had a different plan to end the story in glory. And so God raised Jesus from the dead. And because he did that, the movement of Christianity began. Let me read you what Paul said when he got to... to, um, This is what what Paul said. He, he, He was in Athens. And his buddies hadn't arrived. And he was walking around the square checking out all the idols. Can I get my cell phone here? I just need that real quick. Thank you. He's walking around the square in, in, uh, in Athens, and this is what, what he said when he finally sort of surveyed everything. He said to the people there, he said, people of Athens, I see, and it was sort of this place where you could do speeches, people of Athens, I see in every way you're very religious. That's another way of saying that inside of you, there's a homing beacon that's pulling you back to God. And you're trying your best to get close to him by all sorts of means, but I'm going to help you a little bit here. I'm going to speed up the process. Right? You feel this internally, this need to be close to God. You, need, you feel this need for the transcendent. And Paul says, I'm, I'm going to speed this up for you. I'm going to help you. Uh, what you feel internally, I'm going to help you externally with. For as I walk around and look carefully at your object of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. He says, so you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. You don't know what it is. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. You wonder who the unknown God is? You wonder who it is? And he goes on, the God who made the world and everything it is, the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. They had a lot of temples in Athens. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. People would bring food and sacrifices to the gods. He says, you don't need that. Rather, he gives, him, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Have you ever thanked God for your life? Have you ever thanked him for your breath? How far have you got into the everything else? From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this. And why did God sort of set things up this way? Why did he appoint times and seasons and boundaries and all these things? God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. I said at being in the service, do you feel like you're far from God? He's not far from you. He's not far from you. He's pursuing you. He loves you. He set things up in your life so that you'd have opportunities to say yes to him. So that you might seek him and find him. So that you might experience why you were made, why you exist, the purpose for your life. That's one of the biggest things about the cross and the resurrection. It gives us purpose. Authors in the Bible, they say, um, he died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but we live for the one who died for us. God leads us into this very interesting combo pack of living. One is to, to begin to love God back. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I love that. He said, so loved. It didn't just say God loved the world. God so loved the world 
Just like that song, that reckless love, love song we're singing. He went all out to win you back. He went all out to separate you from sin and selfishness so you could live a life of loving God and here's the combo pack and loving your neighbor. They come together. You're never meant to live a life of selfishness. You're never meant to live a life where you're the center of the universe. This life is not about you. God frees us from those selfish shackles in our lives. That's his desire. To free us from selfish patterns, from selfish uh, actions that have us trapped and, and, and in this repetitive cycle that doesn't lead to anything good. His desire is to free us from that so that we can love him and love the people around us like he does. He takes us into his training school and makes us apprentices of his way of living. And you were made for it. You were made for it. And so God has been working out the details of your life. Let me read it again. He marked out their appointed times, your appointed time. In history, 2018, you were meant to live in 2018. And the boundaries of their land, where you're going to live, you were meant, wow. God's had his hand in all sorts of details of your life. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Read a little bit further. He says, therefore, since we're God's offspring, in other words, made in God's image, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made in human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Let's have a total change in your, mind, in your outlook, total change in your mind, uh, your, your, the way that you look at life, total change in your, your, your worldview, repentance, total uh, 180. For he set a day when he'll judge the world with justice. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. He's, he set a day when he'll judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. That's Jesus. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And then it says this response. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. And then it says, some of the people believed. So here's God, working all these details for your good. The good is that he wants you to be in relationship with him, to know him, to experience the depth and the fullness of his love for you, to experience the purpose and the meaning that your life comes preloaded with. Lots of people would say, hey, your life doesn't have any meaning. Just make one up and hope it satisfies you. No, you came preloaded with meaning and purpose. And God wants you to experience that. And when you turn your life over to God, you say, okay, I want you to guide my life. I want you to lead my life. You, get, you begin to experience his purpose. You begin to experience in greater ways his love. You get to experience uh, all the things that he had stored up in heaven for you. And he's been setting up the details of your life so you'd have this opportunity. An opportunity like this. He's been orchestrating things in the background. You say, I don't, I, I'm just here. 
for the turkey. <laughs> and that's cool. And that's okay. But God's in the midst of that too. God's working in that too. Would you stand with me?